We'll hear argument now on number 9172, Federal Trade Commission versus Tycor Title Insurance Company. Mr. Wallace. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court has stated repeatedly that the starting point for statutory interpretation is the statutory text that Congress enacted. That admonition has relevance here, even though the question before the Court involves the scope of a judicially implied exception that is not itself to be found in the statutory text. The comprehensiveness and unqualified nature of the prohibitions of restraints of trade and of unfair methods of competition that are in the text nonetheless uh, have much to say about the proper resolution of this case. In, in the Parker against Brown line of decisions, this court has held that those uh, federal statutory prohibitions of commercial conduct should not be interpreted uh, to apply to the activities of the states themselves and derivatively to private conduct that implements the state's regulatory policies. Now, the basic error of the Court of Appeals in this case, as we see it, is that in its concern to give generous scope to this implied exemption, in its concern to give the exemption ample elbow room, it gave the exemption a penumbral expanse that cuts into the quick of the statutory restraints on private conduct that Congress did enact. The statutory commands that embody what this court has described as our national policy in favor of competition, and most emphatically, uh, in favor of price competition among horizontal competitors. Now, contrary to the Court of Appeals approach, this Court's decisions have made clear that primacy is to be given to the statutory command and that the scope of the implied exemption is limited by the exemption's purposes uh, and is to be delimited uh, so as to preserve the effectiveness of, the, of Congress's prohibition of privately imposed trade restraints. Uh, this is the jurisprudential perspective we see reflected in the rigorous two-pronged test for exemption of private conduct that this court unanimously adopted in the Mid-Cal aluminum case and, and that the court has elaborated in subsequent decisions. The first prong of uh, that test, uh, 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 that um, uh, uh, there must be a clearly articulated state policy, is not at issue in this case as it reaches this court. But the reasons why that prong alone does not suffice to exempt uh, private conduct uh, are illuminating um, in considering the function that the second prong must play. Uh, because 
if merely a clearly articulated state policy that private conduct would be exempt from the antitrust laws would suffice, uh, the states would, in effect, be given uh, um, the power to repeal the Sherman Act and the other antitrust laws, industry by industry, as they choose. And in Parker against Brown itself, the court recognized that that cannot be the case under our constitutional system and under the Supremacy Clause, and said that a state does not give immunity to those who violate the Sherman Act by authorizing them to violate or by declaring that their action is lawful, um, uh, something that the, qu- the court quoted again just uh, uh, a year or so ago in the Omni case. So the second prong is of crucial importance here, and the second prong, as it was formulated and as it's been repeated every time, says that the conduct must be actively supervised by the state itself. And every time the court has formulated this prong, it has used the modifier actively. It, it Wallace, I, under your standard, uh, as proposed, I wonder how a regulated entity or business would ever know whether the action was going to be protected by Parker immunity. It seems to me that it is an area where we're better off with a clearer line so that these businesses know one way or another whether there's going to be Parker immunity. Uh, of course. And to, to leave it open, as you suggest, to evaluating in each case the extent to which the state is um, the quality of its activity seems to me problematic. Um, well, uh, if I may say so, Justice O'Connor, that's, a, a, that's several questions rolled into one. And to start at the, at the end, um, the, the standard we are proposing and the standard you just described are two different standards. I, I think what you just described is the way others have portrayed our, our approach to this question. Uh, to us, the inquiry is a much simpler one. It is whether there has been review and approval by state officials of uh, the uh, proposed rates. And, and we mean approval of the substance of those restraints. Well, do you mean the states could never employ the so-called negative option approach that was used here, whereby you file the rate, it goes into effect, unless the state disapproves it? It would appear to me that then you're suggesting that isn't a possible Professors Arita and Turner, in their analysis, came to the conclusion that the negative option approach really cannot suffice um, as an adequate method of state supervision. We don't go that far. We think that uh, there can be a showing that the option uh, was exercised in a way that showed that the state officials did, in fact, approve um, the policies and accept that they were reviewed and that the, um, the state can manifest its approval in any way it sees fit, including a failure to disapprove, as long as there is assurance that the state 
has reviewed and approved the restraint, the, the particular reg, restraint, uh, as consistent with the state's regulatory policies. Uh, it's harder to manifest that in a negative option system of regulation, but it can be manifested. Aren't you getting into the substance of the state regulation if you go that far? We don't believe so. We, we think that the only inquiry is whether the state made that determination, whether state officials determined not that the filing was approved for filing, that it had all the requisites, as we explain in footnote 16 of our brief, that, required, that are required for a filing to be put into the file, perhaps made available for public scrutiny, but that the this, this officials have determined that the rate itself that has been agreed upon, the uniform rate that was submitted, is consistent with the state's regulatory policies. We, Excuse me, how, how does the individual who has to know whether he can uh, uh, apply that rate that he's agreed with with other people pursuant to this state scheme, how does he know it? I mean, if the state agency just has a regular procedure whereby the clerk of the state agency, after 30 days, issues an order saying the rates are hereby approved, and the individual doesn't really know whether they looked at him or didn't look at him, what, what's he, he supposed to do? And he has to find out before he engages in conduct that would be a per se violation of the Sherman Act did, and, and a similarly a violation of Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission. How does he find out? I mean, tell me how he, how he would he do that. He has to find out by asking the officials so that he, he's, he, he's got an answer from the state that will stand up in, uh, under scrutiny in proceedings of this kind so that he can make his defense that, yes, I engaged in price fixing with my competitors, but the, but the prices were approved by the state. What if the order is not signed by the clerk, but is in, is in fact signed by the agency heads, uh, a majority of them, or all of them? But in fact, they don't look at it. They just sign it routinely. It comes around after 30 days, and they sign it. They haven't looked at it all. Does, does it, that protect them? Um, these, uh, uh, this is a difficult question of fact. I I'm know not it is. going what, to say the, the fact that the agency officials signed an order is a conclusive showing that they reviewed and approved the rates. It is not. It's not a conclusive showing. It is strong evidence. You're really but, putting the title companies in an extraordinary position. They're, they're trying to get rates approved. They file them in the, uh, before the insurance commissioner, whoever it is, in Phoenix or whatever state. The insurance commission indicates approval, and the, the, the attorney is supposed to call them up and ask them, did you really mean to approve it? And that, that's a strange burden. Well, they, they are acting on the advice of counsel in conducting their business. They're aware of uh, the... the uh, constraints imposed by the federal antitrust laws on price fixing among horizontal competitors and they're aware of the nature of the particular state program and can find out more about the nature of the particular state program and they're... Uh, How would they go about finding out more about... Uh, I take it what you're suggesting is that they interrogate the people responsible for the decision as to the how the decision in their particular case was reached? Well, it, uh, that is one way of going well, about what, what, it. What would be another uh, way? Well, uh, obviously, with a public utility commission that issues a decision or that holds a hearing, you've got a written record. Uh, it's in these negative option systems that it gets more difficult, to the point, as I said, where Professors Arita and Turner thought they just won't suffice. 
And I, I do think it's more of a burden for uh, the regulated competitors to be able to make the requisite showing when that is the kind of system that the state is utilizing. Uh, but our concern has to be that unless they can establish that defense uh, to uh, price fixing, Congress has, has uh, without qualification, uh, comprehensively prohibited price fixing among competitors. In a close case, it seems to me that the inquiry will be after the fact of the conduct. That is to say, the title company has no assurance in a close case of what resources the state can or will devote to reviewing the price fixing until after it's submitted. And yet the title company has to know at the time that it makes the submission or has its, or has its meetings uh, that the conduct is, is, is protected. Well, it has to know if for business planning purposes, it, it, it certainly is better for it to know. None of these state schemes compel uh, the, company to, uh, the companies to charge uniform rates, even if a submission has been made. They are still free uh, 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 to uh, deviate from those under these schemes. Um, these are not tariff schemes of the kind that you get where there has, uh, uh, you know, in, at the ICC or something of that sort. So the prudent course of action is for them to continue to engage in price competition unless and until they can assure themselves that they uh, have had review and approval or that the scheme uh, has a system of review and approval that they're entitled to rely upon as having been applied in their case, uh, a system of actual review and approval. I'm not, uh, the commission has said that an aberrational failure uh, to apply the scheme uh, accurately and properly in a particular case is not going to defeat the exemption. But they look to see whether uh, the rates have been submitted in, in, into a scheme where there is, in fact, review and approval um, uh, of uh, the rates themselves as consistent with the state regulatory policy. It is hard to see what else um, uh, suffices under the very standards that this court has articulated about what constitutes satisfaction of the active supervision prong of uh, the Mid-Cal test. Uh, the court has said that there must be um, uh, um, uh, review of, of the particular restraint that's being imposed and the state must make it its own um, uh, rather than just an authorization that private uh, uh, competitors can set their own uh, uh, prices. May I interrupt with a question, Mr. Wallace? Uh, I know it's not an issue, or I know the case only involves the second prong of this uh, two-prong test. But what is the what is the state policy that's at issue that justifies the uh, state programs? Is it one to protect the companies from bankruptcy, or is it one to prevent them from charging too much? Well, the the the, the various statutes uh, articulate. Mostly policies to assure um, that there will uh, not be discriminatory practices and that there, not will, that there will not be unreasonable uh, rate practices. Uh, and 
the submissions. Uh, like the Motor Carrier Act. And, and, yeah. the submissions do require supporting data, although in practice sometimes uh, those data were not submitted. Did sometimes the state policy require all the companies to, to join in the joint program? Not so far as I'm aware. They authorize it, uh, but they do not uh, typically require them uh, so that uh, to join like in the rate bureau. Title, when it wanted to stay out, it could price independently and it wouldn't affect the state policy? I'm not aware of any of these programs in which companies are required to join in a rate bureau filing. Uh, as far as in I fact, know, are any of these programs determine. still in existence, or have they all been abandoned? Uh, I am told, though it's not in the record in this case, that uh, the programs are not presently in use, um, at least I, depending on the outcome of this work. case. You couldn't get the biggest company to participate. They're, 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 after the Commission's complaint was filed um, uh, in, in uh, this case, there were some travel damage actions brought and consolidated in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. That case was settled out. But since that time, the rate bureaus have been discontinued. That's my understanding. Perhaps counsel uh, would correct me if I don't understand it correctly when he gets up. Uh, uh, but none of that is in the record of the this. The reason case. I ask you about the first prong, it seems to me that in order to judge whether there's been adequate supervision of, main, of carrying out the state policy, you kind of ought to know what the state policy is. And I'm a little puzzled from the briefs as to just what the states are trying to do here, uh, other than maybe just approve of uh, joint rate making. Uh, that the companies wanted to get in. Well, we, we shy away from what we're accused of by filings on the other side from an evaluation of the quality of the state uh, policy. Um, so uh, the court's cases have made it quite clear, in Hoover against Romney and others, that the states can choose their own policy, and it isn't up to federal courts in deciding whether to confer an antitrust exemption to evaluate whether the policy is a wise one, whether the policy adequately protects consumers in comparison with the antitrust laws and so forth. So we see the, the second prong inquiry as a, a rather simpler one, and that is just to determine the fact that state officials have looked at the rate in a, a substantively to determine whether the rate itself complies with whatever the state's policy is. That's what suffices, and that is what the Commission found lacking here. Let me ask one other question. Is there any distinction between the rates for the premiums for the title insurance itself and the charges for the uh, title searches and the charges? Are they both covered in the same manner by... The, these uh, rate agreements, the, the um, proceedings, I should say. Um, there, there are package rates involved in the submissions to the state officials. The commission challenged only the search and examination components, which are the larger share of it, um, because of the McCarran-Ferguson Act exemption for the business of insurance. Um, search and examination are conducted separately by other persons than insurance companies in many instances, and the Commission's theory was that that is not part of the business of insurance within the exemption. Now, in, in, in one of the states at issue, it was found that there was uh, no review and that stated, this was, I'm speaking of Connecticut, and that state authorities had 
no uh, authority to review um, uh, a very important element of the insurer's expenses, namely commissions to the broker or sales agent. And those commissions uh, uh, could affect uh, all of the charges, you see, including those for search and examination services. So um, there, the, uh, the, the charges can get intermixed and intertwined in a way that affects the portion of uh, the price fixing that uh, the commission uh, uh, and we contend is not within the McCarran-Ferguson Act exemption. Now, um, we do not believe that this court has left the governing principles obscure, and we've quoted in our brief relevant portions from this court's opinions, including its recent opinion in Patrick against Burgett, Respondents in their amici differ in how they would modify the principles this court has so carefully formulated, and which we don't <laughs> believe require improvement, and we certainly don't believe would be improved by their modifications. Respondents themselves um, defend um, the standard adopted by the Court of Appeals that there must be some basic level of activity. It's rather hard to see exactly how that standard uh, can be reconciled with a sentence in this court's opinion in Patrick against Burgett saying on page 101 of, of volume 486, the mere presence of some state involvement or monitoring does not suffice. Um, and then with a supporting citation to 324, liquor. Uh, but in, in Patrick against Burgett, the state authority had no authority to review at all the actions of the private authority, did it not? That is true in that case, but not in 324, liquor, for which the court relied in, in, uh, in, in the citation immediately following that sentence. Um, in any event, the inquiry, if, if it certainly would be an elaborate process to try to reconcile what it is that constitutes some basic level of activity that does not constitute reviewing the rate itself and deciding whether the rate is uh, consistent with the state's regulatory policies. It, it, uh, if anything would generate uncertainty, it would be a standard that looks not to the rate, but, some, but looks to activities that are really off point for well, the Mr. purposes Mr. Walsh, of the you exemption. Say, you say reviewing the rate itself, which is what you say should be done. And yet you, you've said in answer to a question from Justice Scalia, I believe, that a certificate or an order signed by a majority of the commissioners saying we have reviewed the rate and find it conforms to the state policy would not be conclusive. Well, you have added a little bit to uh, the way he formulated the hypothetical, I believe, Mr. Chief Justice, and it would be stronger evidence if they said we have reviewed uh, the, the substance would it, would of the rate. Would it be rate. conclusive? 
I, I, I hesitate uh, to say that any one piece of evidence would always be conclusive regardless of what other evidence there is in a particular case. I think that as you formulated it, it would be extremely hard to overcome in any case. Uh, um, that, that's as far as I could go. I couldn't really commit the commission beyond that or, or anticipate every case that might arise. Uh, it's an evidentiary question, and, and it's seldom that any one piece of evidence is conclusive for all cases and all possible hypotheticals that could be imagined. Anyway, you're dealing with something that's a question, that you see it as a question of fact in every exactly case. Exactly. There's so. no presumption of regularity given to administrative proceedings or that sort of thing. It ordinarily turns those things into more questions of law than questions of fact. Well, the, the, the presumption of regularity applies when there is a duty to do something, um, and, and then it's a rebuttable presumption in a particular case. Uh, we've discussed that in a footnote in our brief. Uh, it gets closer, it seems to me, uh, when we speak of the presumption of regularity to the structural test that some of the amici suggest uh, as a replacement uh, for the Court of Appeals test uh, uh, and for the formulations this Court has used, uh, a test that would just say whether um, uh, state authorities had, uh, uh, the state officials had the authority, whether they used it or not, contrary to what this Court has said, that they must have and exercise the authority. Uh, this would require uh, not a simple question of fact of whether the uh, the matter was reviewed, but a really quite contentious inquiry into what are the duties of the state officials under the particular scheme. As you can see from the filings in this case, there's much disagreement about what were the legal duties of the officials in the four states at issue here. Uh, and one uh, way uh, to introduce evidence about how should their duties be interpreted is to look at what they, in fact, have been doing as the official's own interpretation of the duties. It seems to me that this leads to a, a much more a contentious kind of judgment on whether the officials are properly carrying out their duties under state law uh, then the simple inquiry that we think this court's cases look to, the simple factual question of did they review and approve the rights is consistent with their policy or didn't they, regardless of whether this, they should have under state law. The, uh, assume, assume the statute uh, itself uh, told the, the agency that uh, part, one of your duties is to review these rate filings to see if you should object to them. Uh, and uh, that the, they have the staff to do it, they got the money to do it, and the uh, state expects the, uh, expects the agency to carry out its duties. You, you, you think that, uh, that you need some more proof? Well, um, yes, sir, I guess you do. I, I do because all of those are um, questions that are subject to debate in a particular case, whether that's a discretionary duty or a mandatory duty, whether the funding and the staff are adequate to perform the duty or are inadequate no, but it and they be, really it can't make perform you, the duty. It wouldn't make any difference to you uh, uh, how clearly the uh, duty was spelled out, how well it was funded. Uh, uh, 
and how much staff there was available. Because price restraints must be the policy of the state. The state must have adopted the, the particular restraint as consistent with its regulatory policies. If, if the well, state... That, that, that certainly puts quite a gloss on what we've said before, don't you think? Well, that, it takes a, a specific action of the state to approve the price restraint that... Uh, what the court has said is that... Um, uh, state involvement in what are actually uh, privately imposed well, price restraints. Are, are, are saying they have to approve them expressly the price restraint. Well, uh, it, it, it's hard to see why they don't emanate from the private parties themselves if the state has not reviewed and approved them. If I may reserve. Well, I know, but, but here, the, here the state has got a, a, a mandatory scheme in its law set up uh, to uh, require uh, examination and approval of these rates. I trust you mean here as a hypothetical. In my hypothetical. The 36 states that well, filed in this but case the rule, the rule this you're asking us to adopt is precisely that. It doesn't make it just doesn't make any difference. I may reserve the balance of my time. Uh, very well, Mr. Wallace. Mr. Christie, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The opinion of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals below should be affirmed by this Court because the standard of active supervision which it utilized strikes a carefully constructed balance we submit between the goals of the federal antitrust laws on the one hand and the principles of federalism which underlie state action. The Circuit Court standard provides assurance that the states have enacted a legitimate regulatory program while leaving to the states themselves the task of assuring its strictness or its effectiveness. Each of the states here had enacted a system of regulation with agencies staffed and funded and charged with the duty to assure that the state's rate policies were adhered to. And over the period of time encompassed by this proceeding, these regulators had given administrative attention to these bureaus and their filings. Mr. Christie, can I just ask one factual question? Were these state agencies, this the sole responsibility of the agency, or was this something that they did in addition to other duties? Well, the agencies in every case, Justice Stevens, were state insurance departments. Uh, they, they only had to worry about insurance matters, but, of course, they had many lines of insurance in but addition to the same insurance uh, <coughs> board, the uh, state board that would, would govern fire insurance and life insurance and everything else. That's correct. And so That's this was an additional duty <coughs> for them. That's correct. And if I may respond as well to uh, your question to Mr. Wallace, Justice Stevens, about the underlying state policies that these statutes were designed, uh, in effect, to, to, to enforce. Um, all of the statutes in question required that the rates be not excessive, inadequate, or discriminatory. Those essentially set out, and these states defined what they meant by all those concepts, what I think the state was worried about. They wanted the rates not to be excessive because they wanted consumers to have reasonable rates. They were worried about inadequacy issues. They, these, these are insurance companies, and the states want to uh, be sure that, uh, that a policyholder, uh, when it comes time to make a claim, uh, has someone to make a claim against. And lastly, they worry about uh, uh, discriminatory uh, practices, that is, uh, is, is one uh, uh, line of consumers being unfairly charged as opposed to another line of consumers. But could you answer the other half of my question? In most of the insurance bureaus, I understand all the insurance companies must 
have their rates approved. But that was not true in this area. Is that right? Uh, no, Your Honor. In, in, in all, all of these states, uh, all, uh, all title insurance rates were required to be filed. Um, and, and you could file them either individually or you could file them by designating uh, a licensed rating bureau. Uh, to file them. So even a company that would, did not participate in joint rate making would nevertheless have to file and have its rates approved by the same procedure? That's correct. I see. Correct. And uh, the state had no special procedure to uh, review those joint filings? Uh, Justice White, they had no special procedure, uh, although several regulators uh, uh, in the record in this case testified that they gave extra special attention to rates filed by rating well, bureaus. I suppose just single filings uh, might take uh, one standard of review, and joint filings would be a different kettle of fish, wouldn't it? The Court will recall Justice Powell's discussion of this in Southern Motor Carriers. Uh, he discussed the utility of the existence of rating bureaus from a regulator's point of view because it allowed uh, the regulator uh, the efficiencies of of, of looking at one uh, filing rather than having to confront uh, multiple filings from, from separate companies. Uh, let, me, uh, let me ask you, as long as I got you interrupted, uh, what do you think the court below meant by the words uh, that the activity is in place, staffed and funded, and shows some basic level of activity? I think the Third Circuit, intended by those words, to suggest that it's appropriate for an antitrust court simply to confirm the seriousness of the state's intent uh, to assure that its policies were being adhered to by looking to see whether, in fact, the, the regulatory activity existed. The emphasis is on, was there, was there an indication that the regulators were in place and was there some indication that they were, in fact, acting, that, that they were, as we put it in our brief, that the cop was on the beat? Well, uh, I suppose it would be a, a very basic uh, level of activity if they just received the rates and put them in the right folder without ever, without ever uh, looking at them in terms of whether they were reasonable or whatever the standard was. Well, I don't think if you intend by your hypothetical, Justice White, to suggest that, to ask whether the Third Circuit's test is filed, uh, is met, if the regulators do nothing, I, I, I would agree. I don't think the Third Circuit's test would be met. Uh, uh, but if there is some indication that they have acted, and clearly the record here amply supported their conclusion, then the Third Circuit says, we won't go any farther. That is sufficient to show that the state has gone uh, beyond just simply articulating an anti-competitive policy and doing nothing more, the kind of situation that this Court uh, faced in Midcal and well, if the state's policy, if, if you de define the state's policy as uh, as a decision to uh, uh, to permit non-competitive rate making, well, all you would have to do is to look at these filed rates and uh, say, why, well, of course, uh, these people have agreed; they've eliminated competition among themselves. The rates, obviously, then are have are carrying out the state policy, right? Well, the regulators are charged by their statute to consider more. They are charged to consider whether the rates 
are excessive, inadequate, or discriminatory. That's the determination that, uh, that the statutes give them an obligation to consider. That's, a, that's with respect to joint rates and... Uh, and individually filed rates. The, 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 the basic statutory obligation on the regulator is no different in either case. Now, we, there's an amicus brief filed by 30-some-odd states in this case suggesting there's no active supervision here. Uh, Justice O'Connor, you're right. Uh, we think that they misperceive uh, the record in this case. Uh, obviously, it's the record itself that demonstrates whether or not uh, these uh, states were regulating uh, and not the arguments of counsel. Uh, we think the record here amply indicates, as we've laid out at some length in our brief, um, that the regulators in these states looked at the filings, that they asked questions about the filings, that they asked, uh, uh, that they demanded that these rating bureaus provide increasingly sophisticated uh, and expensive uh, justifications for their rates, and ultimately uh, the regulators approved the rates and allowed them to become effective. Although it wasn't specific in the submission of the uh, uh, states that were supporting the petitioner, uh, there was a suggestion that perhaps the state should participate at two levels, both at the level at which the rate is initially determined before filing and the review after filing. Uh, do, do any states have state representatives that participate in formulating the Rating Bureau recommendations? I don't think, at least Justice Kennedy, insofar as the record is established here, that there's an indication that the regulators participated in the sense of, of sitting down with the Bureau itself as it determined what rates it wished to file. Um, but your question does address uh, uh, an issue that uh, is appropriate, I think, for the court to consider. Um, uh, they're obviously, in the course of a regulator's review of a rate, uh, there, is, there is a need to look at it when it is first filed. Um, uh, there is also uh, uh, the desirability of keeping some sense of what the continuing impact of the rate is uh, uh, over the years the rate is, is in effect. Um, we think in this case uh, these departments did both. They, they reviewed the rate when it was filed and they made effort to, by, by demanding that the bureaus produce uh, profitability studies uh, uh, showing the impact of the rate uh, over the years that ensued, uh, they made an effort to keep track uh, of the impact of the rate in, in that respect as well. Mr. Christie, are there any states today that use this negative option approach? Justice uh, O'Connor, the, the amicus brief filed by the American Insurance Association sets out at considerable length uh, in an appendix all of the states classified by uh, various ways in which uh, uh, they, in effect, allow rates to become uh, in effect. Um, and, and their catalog of what states do uh, suggests that the most frequently used uh, uh, procedure uh, which the states have designed is the so-called deemer or negative option pr pr procedure. Uh, this uh, is a procedure, in other words, not just uh, uh, the brainchild of the legislatures in these four states with respect to title insurance, but it is used widely throughout uh, many lines of insurance in many states, and I think 
insofar as regulation of other economic enterprises is concerned as well. What is the advantage? It saves saves the clerk from signing something saying the Commission has considered this rate and and it's okay? Justice Scalia, I think from the state legislature's point of view, the advantage is simply that it doesn't force the insurance regulator to look at each and every filing and take the time to make an affirmative determination that it meets the statutory standard. I was going to ask about that. Because, because obviously, some filings are more significant in terms of their ultimate impact uh, on consumers than other filings. Well, suppose suppose the state uh, agency has a a general rule. I, I don't see how it would apply to this title insurance, but it would apply to some other fields of regulation that any rate that, uh, uh, that will affect all of the consumers in, in, in an amount, of, a total amount of less than uh, $30 million simply won't be, uh, won't be reviewed, which might make sense uh, as, given the staff that the uh, particular agency has available. Suppose they have, they have that rule. We just won't, we, we won't look at them if, if, the, if the take on this particular rate is less than $30 million. Well, is that okay? I don't know that I would think it'd be okay. Um, um, if that's all that the record suggested they did. Um, that's all they do. That's, these, that's their rule. But, but it, you said that that's good, that some of these rates aren't worth the trouble. Well. This is what they think. Okay, make it $1 million. That is true. $1 but, million. but they were making an individual assessment on a, on a, on a filing-by-filing basis that this filing doesn't meet, uh, uh, d- doesn't need intensive review on our part because it has minimal consumer impact. They weren't just setting a if I'll call it an arbitrary line below which they wouldn't uh, look at rates. Well, I'm, I don't, how, how would you decide what's minimal consumer impact? I assume you, p- you pick some number, don't well, you? I submit, you want to be consistent? I submit, uh, Justice Scalia, that these states, this is, this is within the discretion that they give to the regulator. They want the regulator to make that kind of I, I understand they, they do, but... They, they don't want the regulator to, to, to be forced uh, to spend the resources uh, she has looking at each and every... So the situation you have left, then, is that under the federal antitrust laws, within that state, people can collude to fix rates so long as they know the take on it isn't more than a million dollars within that state, or 30 million, whatever level the the state agency picks. Isn't that the result? As as I understand the Third Circuit's, as I read the Third Circuit's uh, opinion, um, the, 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 the basic level of activity that they're looking for wouldn't be met in the context of the, of the, of the decision not to look at any rates below. Well, you, you can't have it both ways, it seems to me, Mr. Christie. Either this is administrative efficiency you're talking about, and that's why it's useful, in which case I do think any agency will make general, general cuts like that. They say, we're not going to look at this entire category, and that's administratively efficient. I thought that was your argument. But my point is, if that is the case, then you have this whole unregulated area, and you're saying the Sherman Act shall not apply even though this area is unregulated. Well, I'm, I'm saying that, that if the record shows, as you look at all that the state did, that state regulators charged with a duty of making sure that their state statutory standards are met, uh, in addition to that, uh, uh, perform some level of activity consistent with their statutory duty, that that, I suffice, is, is, suggests is active supervision, and it would meet the Third Circuit standard. Mm-hmm. 
Would the answer to, to Justice Scalia's hypothetical be that it would, could be sound regulatory practice to rely on the market to take care of these fringe minimum, smaller filings? Well, uh, Justice Stevens, in fact, uh, that was precisely the judgment the regulators in Wisconsin made with respect to filings that they considered minor. Uh, they scrutinized very carefully the contents of these uh, filings, uh, but they made a judgment that that they wouldn't look as intensely at the rates underlying these filings, among other reasons, because in their experience there was some competition uh, among and between uh, title insurers, even title insurers who were members of the Bureau, uh, with respect to those rates. Uh, in these states that you represent, uh, uh, was there some legislative uh, explanation uh, for why the decision was made that uh, competition should not be the rule uh, in, uh, among title insurance companies uh, with respect to examining titles wholly aside from the insurance? Uh, it may be that uh, maybe it's the historic that uh, Justice White, the, 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 the insurance statutes didn't distinguish uh, in terms of, of the rate standard that was to be applied or the duties of the regulators uh, with respect to whether it was that component of the charge that represented the search and examination or that component of the charge that represented the charge for the risk. Was there some determination that uh, some explanation of why they, ex why they thought competition shouldn't be the rule among insurance companies? I don't think that there is any legislative history uh, on um, uh, th that would illuminate uh, this intent, with one exception. It's very clear that the statute in Arizona, which for the first time vested um, authority in the uh, state insurance department to regulate title insurance rates, and which also permitted rating bureaus to operate, was done so because two title insurance companies in Arizona had become insolvent uh, shortly before the passage of the legislation. Because they've been competing? I, I don't know why, why they became insolvent. It's very clear that... Or, that or why they would draw this uh, conclusion from the fact that uh, two companies went broke, that there shouldn't be competition. Well, they obviously were concerned about um, um, uh, insurer insolvency, and, and they felt it was in the state's interest, in their wisdom, uh, to begin to regulate the rates for, for, for title insurance companies and, uh, in that instance, to permit uh, rating bureaus uh, to operate. We submit uh, that the type of qualitative uh, analysis which permeates the Federal Trade Commission's decision below uh, is an inappropriate uh, standard for active supervision. Uh, both the Third Circuit and the First Circuit in the New England Motor Carriers case criticized the Federal Trade Commission for sitting, for insisting on sitting in judgment uh, of the strictness or effectiveness of what these states did, um, which became, uh, in effect, an overly intrusive, uh, uh, an intrusion into the prerogatives of these states uh, to regulate as they see fit. Uh, we think that their decision is consistent with this court's uh, precedent, uh, which has evidenced uh, a determination to give the states some breathing room uh, to regulate. 
In Southern Motor Carriers, uh, the Court held that the Sherman Act was not designed to compromise a state's ability to regulate and rejected a compulsion requirement uh, uh, for Mid-Cal's prong one test. In Town of Halley, the Court also rejected uh, an intense inquiry into legislative intent as undermining the policies of federalism. In the most recent state action opinion, the Omni case decided by this Court last term, uh, the Court uh, uh, rejected an inquiry into whether the municipal regulation of billboards was in some way procedurally or substantively defective or deficient. The Court also rejected a conspiracy exception to state action, um, suggesting that the probing uh, into the intent of a regulator um, was uh, anathema to the federalism principles uh, that underline state action. Um, several of the, of the members of the court in questioning Mr. Wallace have expressed concern about um, the problems uh, fa- uh, which private parties would face uh, if, if the Federal Trade Commission's analysis of active supervision um, became um, uh, the law. And indeed, uh, we submit uh, that would be uh, uh, a, um, uh, a practical problem which would cause uh, the withdrawal of uh, companies from uh, otherwise accepting this kind of option, just as it caused these companies uh, to withdraw from the rating bureaus uh, uh, in, in this case. Uh, Mr. Wallace suggests that to meet the Commission's affirmative determination test, uh, all a company would have to do would be to in effect, communicate with an insurance department or in some other fashion uh, endeavor to evaluate ahead of the fact what they might do. Um, I submit that however uh, cautiously and carefully uh, a company considering uh, entering into a rating bureau and joining in a collective filing might be, there just is no way to assure that ultimately uh, whatever commentary is received in advance, uh, the department will act in a way which might satisfy um, the Federal Trade Commission. Any test we submit that leaves for later uh, judicial assessment, uh, the quality of what a regulator has done um, defies predictability. Mr. Christie, something just crossed my mind. Maybe it doesn't really uh, go to the, the force of your argument, which is very strong. But is the, uh, if, if your test is correct and the Third Circuit's test is correct, isn't the McCarran-Ferguson statute pretty much redundant now? Well, Justice Stevens, uh, uh, at least measured by um, uh, the, the Commission's uh, perception of, uh, of the, the application of the McCarran Act uh, here, uh, you, you, you might call it redundant. Obviously, however, they are two different um, – they, they involve two different – uh, issues uh, they are analyzed differently. Um, uh, well, what it, I mean is, uh, and I, you, you, I'm just not not saying you're not you're not absolutely correct. But if this is this is all that's necessary, I'm sure every insurance department throughout the country engages in this, at least this basic level of activity. So you don't really need a statutory exemption because it's be all taken care of under uh, Parker against Brown. Well, um, certainly, certainly, as as Your Honor recites it. Um, that kind of definition of of uh, of, uh, of Parker Brown may, in many cases, uh, make it uh, unnecessary, if you will, for a 
for, a, for an insurance company to separately establish a, a McCarran-Ferguson uh, uh, exemption. Uh, but I don't think that should in any way affect this Court's analysis of either. It just suggests that maybe the Southeastern Underwriters case was wrongly decided. <laughs> well, uh, I take it the FTC's position is that uh, the McCarran-Ferguson Act furnishes no uh, protection for what uh, it uh, challenged in this case. Uh, that's correct, uh, Justice White. Uh, the what did the Court of Appeals say about that, or did it reach it? They, they said only that they would uh, defer the issue because uh, having decided uh, for the respondents on the basis. And was it your position that uh, McCarran-Ferguson, before the commission, at the fe- McCarran-Ferguson protected you? Absolutely, Justice White, because uh, these search and examination services, which uh, title insurers conduct, uh, they conduct uh, as, a, as a necessary part of the process of underwriting that they go through um, unnecessary because it's through this process that they come to conclude what they're willing to insure under uh, the policy and what they're not willing to insure under the policy. The only reason McCarran-Ferguson doesn't cover the whole thing is that some of the, act- some of the activities arguably are not the business of insurance. That's correct, Justice My Stevens. hypothetical early, earlier was assuming we're talking only about business of insurance, and, and I think under your analysis, and it may well be right, we really don't need the McCarran-Ferguson uh, amendment anymore. Well, of course, there are some folks over on the hill across the street who agree with or that. Or the title insurance companies uh, needn't uh, rely on uh, the state action doctrine. I'm sorry, Justice White, I missed the... Well, uh, they don't need both, I'll put it that way. You could could get along either with your state action doctrine or McCarran-Ferguson. Well, um, in... That was your position, I take it, before the commission. That was our position before the commission. The commission determined that that, uh, search and examination uh, services were not a part of the business of insurance, and that issue uh, remains uh, still uh, unresolved. With McCarran-Ferguson, you, you, you would prevail even if it were a, a totally uh, inactive uh, state. Indeed, if there were no state regulatory agency, I assume you'd prevail, wouldn't Well, you? I think the regulation by state law aspect of the McCarran-Ferguson Act uh, exemption has been pretty well established to be a test that requires uh, a court to simply look at whether by legislation a state has permitted or prohibited uh, the act in, uh, activity in question. Um, um, the, the analysis, of course, that the Third Circuit took of, of the active supervision issue here um, is, is more elaborate. Um, it, it looks to see whether, uh, by legislation, uh, regulators have uh, and exercise uh, the power to uh, review private conduct and to disapprove what doesn't comport with state policy. Uh, they look to see that the regulators have ample duty and power under those statutes. And finally, they look to make sure, as we put it, that the cop is on the beat, that, uh, that these regulators uh, uh, are staffed and funded and that, they, that, that, that there's confirmation um, that, uh, that, 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 in fact, uh, uh, regulation exists. You th- and you think that that's less intrusive upon, upon state uh, sovereignty than uh, simply uh, looking to see whether, in fact, the rate was considered. I think it is less... Don't care how many people considered it, how good they were. Was was the rate... I think it is less intrusive because it looks to the existence as opposed to any effort to assess the quality of the regulation. But I would concede, as many of our amici have very forcefully argued, that any test that goes beyond looking to the statutory structure of regulation 
uh, run some risk uh, of lapsing into some sort of qualitative analysis of what is going on. I also uh, concede that it it lessens the uh, possibility of certainty or predictability for private parties considering whether to accept an option which the state has provided for them. However, if this court believes that uh, the appropriate test of active supervision requires going to some degree beyond just what the statutes say, I submit that the Third Circuit's test is a focused and deferential test uh, that is adequately sensitive to the underlying principles of federalism and to this court's precedent. Mr. Chris, may I ask, and perhaps this isn't a proper question, but to what extent is this still a live issue? Have these, these activities pretty well come to a halt? Or? Well, as I said earlier, Justice Stevens, all these companies withdrew uh, when the Commission began its investigation. Uh, none of the respondents, to my knowledge, today uh, belongs to a rating bureau that is actively filing rates with the state uh, official. Frankly, uh, uh, if the Commission's opinion were to stand, I don't think that there'd be any way uh, that uh, some antitrust counselor could safely advise a client as to whether it was prudent to engage in a bureau. Um, the, the, the Third Circuit's test, uh, I think, is a much more realistic test, a more meaningful test, and even if there remains some degree of risk, it, it, it is more clearly discernible in advance uh, than, than, than the Commission's analysis. If there are no more questions from the Court, uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Christie. Mr. Wallace, you have a minute remaining. Thirty-six states have filed a brief saying that their regulatory options are, in fact, being constricted by this decision because relatively modest programs would have drastic consequences on consumers. On pages 6 to 8, we have summarized the evidence found by the Commission in these states in which rates were allowed to go into effect for years without supporting data being submitted, even when requested, and the title insurance companies certainly knew they weren't submitting the requested supporting data. Of course, it's easier for them if they can rely on the mere existence of a program but uh, it is harder on the states and on the consumers and on the policies of the Sherman Act. Any one of these states could change its policy without any leave from this court and, and beef up its regulatory process, couldn't it? That is correct, but uh, the states are arguing that uh, principles of federalism would support their having the option to do more modest programs without having the drastic consequences uh, found here. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. The case is submitted.